Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. With me on today's show is Ruchirat Chowdhury. Ruchirat, please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Maureen. It's a real pleasure and a delight to be here on your show. I'm very excited about it. I'm going to give you a brief introduction because this can take a very long time. I am somebody who straddles the corporate and the academic world. I've donned many hats. I've been a consultant, a strategy consultant. I specialize in mergers and acquisitions and um, organization design and leadership. A few years ago, I got into academia. So I teach at several business schools, the University of Chicago, the Booth School of Business, which is also where I studied, the London Business School, NUS and SMU in Singapore, and IMD in Lausanne and in Singapore. And yes, I've also led several industry uh, leadership roles. Oh, yes, I'm also an author. I've written a book. It's called Coaching the Secret Code to Uncommon Leadership. And I was very fortunate to have luminaries like Sheryl Sandberg and many, many academics endorse it. Ruchira, given your extensive experience, what prompted you to write a book about coaching and leadership? It's an interesting question. It's been a very eclectic career graph, right? Industry roles, leadership roles in Asia Pacific, Europe and the US, and of course, consulting. In 2013, I was part of a large financial services organization in Singapore. Mm -hmm. Uh, I used to run the region for them. I found a complete lack of enablement or any kind of value addition to me as an individual. I wasn't growing. That sort of made me think hard about the kind of organizations I didn't want to work in. I found the work culture to be very toxic. And let's just say that I wasn't enjoying working. And at that juncture, the University of Chicago, the Booth School of Business, they called me and said, They were looking for an executive coach for their um, leadership development programs. They just introduced this module in the region. And that made me wonder. My first reaction was, I'm not a coach. I don't even know what coaching is. I'm a hard-nosed strategy consultant. And here I was in this financial services organization. I was running part of strategy for them. What would I know about coaching? Having said that, it was a very appropriate juncture because I was disillusioned with the lack of growth or enablement and a complete vacuum of any kind of coaching. So I decided to make this a bit of an experiment. I'd heard from leaders, from the CEOs that I'd consulted in the past, that I somehow took away the noise. I was able to give them clarity. So between the fabulous folks at UChicago and me, we embarked on an experiment of sorts where they brought me in to be their resident coach for their accelerated development program, typically senior um, executives who come in for that program. A week later, I realized I found the whole exercise deeply fulfilling because at the end of the day, coaching really was about helping untangle those big knots in their head. As leaders and as individuals who are so caught up in our day-to-day lives, when we get somebody who can be that sounding board, who can help us think through the various options, someone who can just be there for us, not someone who guides us, but someone who nudges us, who helps us become a better version of ourselves. That's what good coaching does. And I found it a deeply fulfilling experience. And so a very long-winded answer to your question. That's how I got into coaching. I'm curious because you and I have some similarities in our backgrounds. Traditional coaching is more inquiry, and yet you're a strategy consultant. So you find yourself in rooms with people who actually don't know the answer, and you do. Again, typical coaching, at least through some coaching schools, is you have all the answers inside of you. When it comes to strategy, you don't. There's a whole body of work to do that. How do you approach coaching given your background? Maureen, I think it's a fabulous question. And the answer is, it's not perfect. Being a strategy consultant, being a senior leader across uh, industries, there is the urge to offer the solution. It's also how we've been brought up. As managers, we are conditioned to solve people's problems for them. When people tell you about their lives, our first reaction is we want to try and help them. Coaching, as you know, is very contrarian to that approach. Coaching is about helping people find their own answers. It's about giving more power to the question than the answer. It's about asking open-ended questions that help people think for themselves. It's about giving them the clarity, but also the confidence and the self-awareness or consciousness to move forward. So yes, it's been a struggle for me because having been a strategy consultant, having been an MNA consultant, I'm often in situations where one part of me wants to help bring them close to the solution. Mm -hmm. But I also know that's my solution, not theirs. And coaching is all about helping people find their own path. It's their answer. It's their solution. And unless they own it, 
they'll never make it work. It's an interesting intersection of skills. So how did you either unlearn or manage your own desire to jump in and help? Because that's really tough as a highly effective leader to not just solve stuff. As you rightly said, the key word there is unlearn. In fact, when I coach a lot of senior leaders, I tell them coaching is not really about learning new skills. At so many levels, it's about unlearning. It's about letting go of your old beliefs. It's about understanding that my playbook or what made me successful will not make somebody else successful. What made me that fabulous leader isn't necessarily going to work for somebody who now works with me, works for me, is in my team. And that's how I encourage them to be those leader coaches, right? Leaders or managers that don many hats, coaches, managers, teachers at certain times. And that's what I try to emulate, to be a leader coach that can make the shift between occasionally nudging, sometimes supporting, being that sounding board, but just refraining from telling them what to do. So I guess the key to this is you ask, you don't tell. It was hard work for me, but I, I found the power in being that sounding board, that individual who helped somebody become a better version of themselves. And I saw that transformation. I saw that transition for so many leaders. Even now I have um, folks I've coached. They call me from different parts of the world and they tell me about their trials and tribulations, but also their successes. And I think it's a deeply fulfilling experience for a coach, as you probably know. And I think we get better every time. So you're advocating not just for professional coaches, but also for leaders to become coaches. Can you talk a little bit about the balance between sometimes I lead, sometimes I manage, sometimes I coach, and that combination of activities in the world we currently inhabit is really crucial to leadership success? In fact, the book that we alluded to briefly, Coaching the Secret Code to Uncommon Leadership, that's what it's all about. It's about the leader as coach. The book describes how coaching is a secret sauce that makes a leader successful. And these uncommon leaders are those that enable others, that empower others, that take others along in the journey. And as I said earlier, they ask, they don't tell. I think increasingly, this whole notion of coaching being a distinct skill set from leadership has to change. Because let's face it, you cannot be a good manager or a good leader without being a good coach. The world today is so complex, so complicated, so networked that you can't simply have all the answers, right? You have to take others along in the journey. You have to solicit diverse points of view. The pandemic has shown us that as well, right? A good leader is a coach, a coach that constantly seeks opinions, that asks people, that shines a light on others, that empowers and engages others. That's what good coaching is. And I'm very passionate about the topic, the leader as coach. And hence, a lot of my literature, a lot of the writing, a lot of the chapters in the book are really devoted to how you can really up the ante on being that leader that elevates others. Our frameworks overlap significantly, which is probably why we're talking today. We talk about leadership as having qualities like inspiring followership, being innately collaborative, and highly reflective and authentic. That as the leader, I need to be engaging and inspiring people. And part of how I do that is by creating opportunities to have answers. Because as you've brilliantly said, leaders now don't have the answers. We don't have all the answers. We have some of the answers, but it's one piece in a larger puzzle and engaging people in a way that they feel valued and still appreciate my role as the leader. So it's not that I'm abdicating. And I think some people struggle to calibrate the amount of how much do I ask? How much do I tell to fulfill my role as leader? Because we've also seen people just abdicate and that's ineffective also. And that's traditionally what we've seen, right? We saw the evolution from the command and control style to a more inclusive way of leading to more increasingly what we call the empathetic leadership. But I think it's hard to find the perfect balance between enabling, empowering, but also being directive when you need to be, right? Managing and appraising, but also being collaborating and guiding. So you have to be the teacher. Sometimes you have to be the sounding board, but you're also the individual, who's often appraising and taking decisions on your colleagues or your team members' career. So it's a fine balance. To be completely candid, I don't think we were ever taught to coach, right? The way we've sort of evolved as managers or as leaders, we were always told it's about providing answers. It's about telling people what to do. 
a lot of us who've been successful in our careers assume that what made us successful in the past will work for everybody else. But we know that that reality has changed. The understanding that everybody has to chalk or find their own path has to really evolve into a style of leadership where you take others along in the journey, where you collaborate when you need to be, where you guide them when you need to be, but where you're also directive and where you're also prescriptive when it needs to be. It's a really interesting point because back to the learning, unlearning, I'm learning now coaching skills. I'm unlearning at least the habit in my own self that I need to have the answers and building the muscles to collaborate and the idea that as I'm learning this, I'm also going to get it slightly wrong, which feels bad for someone at a certain level who is accustomed to being effective and whatever word you put to it, right, successful. I think the narrative around leadership also changed significantly, right? It was always about the financials. And then in the late 1990s, I think the balance scorecard came about. And that sort of changed our thinking around, it's not just about the financials. By the way, there are other things that feed into what makes a leader successful. There are internal processes, there's governance, there's culture, there is the customer, right? So if I'm looking at this balance scorecard tool, which has clearly four quadrants, the financials, the customer, the processes or the internal learning systems, and your people. And there has been increasingly this acknowledgement that at the heart of everything you do, it is really your people. They make the difference between good and fantastic. And nurturing these people, building them, giving them the right opportunities to grow and flourish is also what makes a leader successful. And frankly, it's not the job of human resources. And it's not just about hiring external coaches like Maureen and Ruchira. Understanding and assimilating that building the next line of leaders is your responsibility as a leader and your responsibility alone. When that sort of acknowledgement takes home, that's when you produce organizations that churn out leaders at every level. We call this a coaching culture or a culture that constantly regenerates the next line of leadership. How do people, leaders in role, learn how to coach? Because we know, you know, many of us go off to coaching programs and they're ten to $30,000 and it's a significant time investment. And many organizations rightfully aren't going to send all their leaders through those kinds of programs. How do people enroll at a mid-level position learn these skills? You said it quite well. No, we aren't going to send everybody to these coaching programs. And, And even if we do, what is the guarantee that they will magically morph into these fabulous leader coaches, right? We go for training programs and often that doesn't translate into anything at all. I think organizations, if you're looking at it from a corporate uh, organization's perspective, organizations that truly want to build a culture of coaching, where they want leaders to coach other leaders at every level in the organization, regardless of their role or the size of their teams, they need to think about coaching differently. Yes, it's great to give coaching skills across the board, but I think at the core of that is helping people understand why they need to coach, what coaching does for those that they coach, but also what coaching does for them. Right. And I've often struggled with it because as a leader coach, when you coach somebody, you can focus more on your strategic cares. It's not just about leaving behind a legacy, which is great. It's also about you. When you coach and make somebody more capable, somebody more confident than they were in the past, you have the ability to focus on so much more than you did in the past. So let's go back to what you said. Yes, training is great, but it's also about helping them understand the rationale for why coaching is important. And unless these leaders buy into it, they frankly aren't going to come back from this coaching program and change the world. And then organizations that have succeeded in building these, you know, lasting coaching cultures, they do a few things right. As a good academic, I always put together models and I borrowed this actually from strategy. It's called the ARC model, right? The Noah's ARC. The A stands for the architecture of the organization. The R is for the routines and the C is for the culture. I'm going to explain this. I'll unpack this thought a bit. Architecture is all about the formal systems in your organizations, how you hire people, how you promote them, how you celebrate them. So if you truly are serious about building an organization where you want people to enable each other, to build each other, then you have to look for not just the experiences or skill sets, but you have to focus on the attitudes 
you have to hire people that will blend into your organization culture but those that will also believe in this business of coaching and enabling and empowering others so it's all about attitude so don't hire for pedigree right but hire for potential do they have it in them to be these wonderful leaders that can take others along in the journey when you promote people don't focus on just the financials as we've talked before focus on what else have they done to build the next line of leaders is it documented is it formalized in their performance management system so that's just one way of doing it so that's the architecture piece and this is not an exhaustive list the routines are really how we interact with each other day to day our systems whether they're formal or informal how we meet each other in the corridors is it a culture where it's okay to give feedback and receive feedback that's also what makes an enabling organization and the last piece is c culture that's a bit we talk about a lot more frequently if you truly want to infuse or weave in coaching into the very fabric of our organization culture we need to celebrate these individuals who build others right we need to constantly talk about them we need to talk about these success stories satya nadella did a fabulous job if you read hit refresh and i've quoted him extensively interviewed him he talks about how he took a completely broken microsoft and recalibrated that organization but he started by listening to people and the best leaders the best leader coaches are also role models they will walk the talk and that's also coaching coaching is not just a formal conversation once a quarter across in a conference room right coaching is everything that you do it's when you bump into somebody in the grocery store when you are stuck in a in a traffic jam with somebody in a cab it's those moments that you snatch to talk to people to help understand how they did in their day get some real time feedback or give them some real time feedback that's also coaching when you shine the light on them when you give them projects that they wouldn't have otherwise got access to or when your boss's boss is in town and you give them the opportunity to interact with that individual that's also coaching and i think that's what these organizations do right they start with the formal systems they also weave that into the informal systems into the routines in the culture and that's what makes in my mind enabling organizations or coaching cultures i appreciate that you're sharing the frameworks we we do something similar we use different words but very consistent in that if you want people to change the organization has to change as well to reinforce the new behavior because for many of us we've been doing the old thing for decades and it is unlikely that we will just start doing something new because we went off to a program no matter how good the program is i'm still most comfortable as a leader having an answer when someone asks me true i've been coaching for years and i still want to answer questions when someone asks hpr's done a study and you must have seen that and they typically ask leaders do you think of yourself as a good coach and almost everybody will say they are and it's not always malintent you realize when they think they're coaching they're telling people what to do it's our understanding of the term coaching because we are most comfortable helping people find the path we are most comfortable giving people answers because that's what we were taught that's what makes good managers that's what makes bright students and business schools and schools and colleges right the smartest kid in class was the one that had all the answers not the one who was asking all the questions and then when we get to these leadership levels at the executive levels suddenly we are now told you have to coach and coaching is all about asking questions so it doesn't come naturally to a lot of people it's hard work let's face it it's hard work when you don't know the answers yourself it feels fuzzy it feels amorphous and sometimes it feels like it has no beginning and no end sometimes you can't see tangible results overnight and that's what we're used to as leaders when it doesn't translate into numbers it's uncomfortable it's even harder when you do have the answer and you have to ask questions <laughs> true do you want to tell a story about a coaching success yeah the books about uncommon leadership and in my mind these uncommon leaders are also fantastic coaches right they understand that when they build their empires or make billions in revenues it's not just about that it's also about taking people along in the journey and while they build their empires they also build these people and at the core of all of this is coaching and the way i define coaching if you go to google i think it's now 800000 hits or whatever but it's a definition i took and i've used it a lot it's the act of maximizing someone's current performance but most importantly future potential through a series of self enabling and non directive conversations or interactions that to my mind is coaching and as i said earlier it comes in many shapes and forms it's not just a conversation it's all that you do to take someone along in the journey to shine the light on them to make them better than they are today right and 
That's really all about coaching. And I was very fortunate to have Cheryl Sandberg. Cheryl's endorsed my book and she was fabulous. I mean, yes, she does a lot for the female community with Lean In, etc. But to me, the sign of an uncommon leader is one who's also accessible. And I have found her to be very accessible, very open. In fact, when she joined Facebook, now Meta, apparently she went to the desk of every employee. They had about a thousand or so and introduced herself and said, hey, I'm Cheryl, I've come on board. I'd love to get to know you better. And it's a very simple act. It's not traditional coaching as we define it, but it forms a bond. And one of the key traits of being that good leader coach is also being authentic. It's also about forging genuine relationships. And that's what she did. That's a simple example. There's Satya Nadella, who I've talked a lot about in Microsoft, but to me, he embodied the quality of that fabulous role model. And he started his journey into Microsoft, which was a complete mess at that time, by listening to people. He spent a year along with Kathleen Hogan, his head of HR, and another senior leader whose name I forget. But they spent the entire year listening to different groups of people across geographies to understand the pain points. And then they replayed a lot of that. They listened to assimilate Listen not to react, but to assimilate, as we call in our coaching jargon, active listening, and then came up with their ideas and their solutions. But those solutions were what they call flexible solutions, flexibility in a framework. So you had the ability to tweak it, revise it, do it. They're very proud of this framework that they put together. It's called the Coach Model Care Management Framework, where every employee, regardless of his or her level or the size of their teams, is expected to coach others, is expected to care for them. So empathy is a very big, big factor. And they have to model those value systems and they get appraised on it. There are fabulous examples all across. And these are the corporate examples, but you can look at sport, you can look at performing arts. You see some fantastic, uncommon leader coaches everywhere. Thank you. It's really helpful to hear examples of people we know and have heard of. And I appreciate that you also wove in the arc, architecture, relationships, and culture, and how Microsoft has built coaching into, as an example, their performance appraisals. And I assume they have some sort of balanced scorecard that looks at, yes, they look at financial results, and they also look at other stakeholders and how they're impacted. Absolutely. You wrote your book pre-COVID. How is coaching and this whole topic changing post the latest crisis? That's an interesting question because the book was all ready to go a year of hard work. And for somebody who's very disorganized like me, I mean, it's strange, you know, you can teach a class at a business school, but when it comes to writing a book that you've never done before, it was completely scattered. Anyways, I was all ready to go. And this was March 2020. And the world changed. And of course, Penguin wouldn't release the book because there was nobody to buy the book. The bookstores were shut and Amazon wasn't going to deliver it. So the printing presses were shut. So we held on for six months and then eight months. And then finally we said, you know, we can't hold back forever. And then I looked at the book and I realized it was in so many ways outdated because I had spent a lot of time and energy stressing on the importance of face-to-face -face coaching. And the world as we knew it had completely changed. In my mind, coaching somebody through Zoom or virtually coaching didn't wasn't an option at that point, right? I had said, as a leader, you really should be looking at doing face-to-face -face interactions so you can pick up the nuances. And so I went back to the drawing board and I said, as we move from a work from home to hopefully a hybrid reality, we really need to find that balance between taking people along through the virtual medium, but also when we're in person. And I think the key there is inclusivity. Those that are with you, in front of you, at your workplace, and those that are, are not with you. You have to treat them similarly. And when you use those constructs of coaching, pick the cues, right? Peter Drucker said, when you look out of the window, see what you can see, but also see what you can't see. So when you go through this virtual medium, there are people whose realities are different from yours, right? They say we're not in the same boat, but we're in the same storm. Some of us have patchy internet connections, dim lighting, wailing babies and barking dogs. And some of us have the luxury of space, etc. So as they say, you know, you could have a dream liner, a luxury liner, or somebody could be in a canoe or just fighting for their life in a lifeboat. We need to figure that out. And as a leader, you have to be empathetic, but you also have to be sensitive to that reality. You're doing a virtual team meeting, pick up that cue. When someone's not 100% or someone's not speaking up, you choose your medium. 
whether it's WhatsApp or a text message, touch base, that's also coaching. Find out what's going on behind the scenes. So don't dismiss it. What you see is often not the reality in a virtual medium. Find that balance and pick your medium. Be sensitive to people's needs. And I keep saying, don't let people slack off, right? We have to deliver the results, but cut them some slack. Find that balance. We're going back to that. Cut them some slack without slacking off. Send out the right signals, be the right role models. That's what the pandemic taught me. How a leader coach has to be even better at managing, appraising, collaborating, guiding. It's hard work. It was hard work to coach in the past. It's even harder now. But you have to. You have to embrace the reality and you have to be better for it. I really appreciate the distinctions you're making that coaching isn't just that we're having a coaching meeting now, it's going to be an hour, and then we're going to go back to something else. That it is in fact woven through, especially as a leader coach, every interaction. So if someone is struggling during the pandemic, which pretty much everyone did on some axis, that the role of the leader to be empathetic and build relationship before focusing on business results was crucial for people working remotely, because some people will continue to do so while others come back hybrid, ensuring that they are engaged and feel part of the team and feel empowered, that how they feel actually does matter and that we're creating opportunities. Because I've seen some organizations say, for those who aren't coming back to the office, they're just not going to get the same opportunities. While other organizations are saying, these are the people delivering our results, we have to create opportunities for everyone and not disadvantage those who are either choosing or don't have a choice. If you are helping care for an aging parent, you may not have the option. And how wonderful that we can now hire the best talent anywhere and engage them. And yet that comes with a cost of dealing with a higher level of complexity. And as you're saying, leader, coach taking on just an expanded role. Absolutely. So many organizations now have a broad framework around how they want this hybrid workplace to function. Many of them are now insisting that you need to be at your workplace two days a week or three days a week. Now, my point is, if that is a reality and that is what you've established, if somebody chooses to be in five days a week or somebody chooses to be in two days a week, you cannot differentiate between them because these are broad constructs. You have to take everybody along in the journey and you have to use technology to your advantage. You have to do the right things to ensure that you're inclusive as a leader and you continue to give those that are not with you the clarity, the confidence, the capability and the consciousness of self-awareness that they need to be better leaders every day. Those rules have to be common for everyone. Our lives are so much more complex than they used to be. That's what distinguishes a good leader from a fabulous one or should I say an uncommon one. And it seems like for a while, it will be harder. Yes. And then we'll learn the new skills and working remotely and working hybrid and doing all these things will just become how we do things. And we'll look back five years from now for many people and say, oh, yeah, I'm not sure why that was a big deal. True. Absolutely. You have a whole chapter in your book on the difference between coaching men and women. Yeah. Can we go into that a little bit? Because it's a... It's an interesting topic. And specifically as a female leader, I don't want to be seen as because I'm different, I'm less. Yeah. I'm just different. Yeah. In fact, it was a bit controversial when I chose to craft the chapter, which said enabling women leaders. My professor mentor, he said, why should it be any different? It's all about merit. And my editor was in a bit of a flap and he said, this is digressing from the larger topic. But I wanted to unpack the thought and I wanted to elucidate it. This is going to be a slightly longer answer, so you'll have to bear with me. Yeah. I've built many frameworks, but at the core of what the book is about is about coaching outcomes. When you coach somebody, what should the individual expect to gain? What should the key coaching outcomes look like? And honestly, I looked everywhere. I looked at um, human resource journals. I looked at coaching websites. I looked at a lot of research and data, and I couldn't find the answer. And for someone who's crafting or writing a book on the leader as coach, what makes you an uncommon leader, I found that interesting that I couldn't truly articulate this entire value proposition of what coaching does for you. But I found the answer in a very unlikely place. My son was watching the Kung Fu Panda. I think he's devoured it in multiples of 10 or something, and I never 
clearly watch it. The mother's too busy strutting around doing work. And in this instance, I did. And I realized the answer, it's all around us. We can derive so many lessons from the arts, the visual uh, media, the performing arts, sport, and we can marry that into our corporate lives, right? This helped me build what I thought was a fairly simplistic framework. What does coaching do for you? When you coach somebody, what can they achieve? One, capability. It's called the four cornerstones of coaching, capability. Clearly, when you coach somebody, you want them to be better at what they're doing tomorrow than they are today. That basically is all about unleashing those reservoirs of creativity, making them more innovative, and also in many ways, helping them, you know, assemble their own career ladder, telling them that it's okay not to follow a vertical path, that your ladder or the lack of it could be a bunch of squiggly lines. You don't have to go from one rung to another. You could go up and down and have squiggly lines, right? And that's the whole capability piece. The second cornerstones of coaching are about clarity. A lot of the leaders that I interviewed for the book said in their mind, this was perhaps what they got most out of coaching, right? It gave them a clearer direction to go forward. Coaching helps you untangle those big knots in somebody's head. And what you really do when you do that is you help them form distinct patterns. So they're able to see the future or their uh, current challenges and trials and tribulations a lot more clearly. So that's clarity. The third piece is consciousness. And that's really another word for self-awareness, knowing what you're great at, knowing what you're good at, but also understanding that there are things that you aren't good at and you really need to do better. It's like holding up a mirror to somebody. But the last piece is confidence. Confidence is not just about how good you look or how you feel. It's about self-belief. The reason I spent time telling you about the four cornerstones model is when I started crafting this chapter, in my mind, I felt men and women need to be coached exactly the same way. The destination is the same. It's about being better. It's about being a better version of yourself. It's about being more capable, having more clarity, having more confidence and more consciousness. But for our women leaders, we truly need to focus on this confidence factor a lot more. So the destination is the same, but the path to getting there could be a little more customized. There is so much research telling us that it's not the competence or capability that often holds us back as women. It's our belief in our own abilities. It's our confidence. And I don't know if anybody, you know, regardless of how successful they are, who hasn't had a moment where they've doubted themselves, where they felt this new role that's come my way, it's been a pure accident. I'm this imposter and I'll be outed at any minute. Or I don't know anyone who hasn't been plagued by guilt when they have a fabulous break. But the first thought is, what about my child? And will I upset my spouse's career? It's really never about, I got this because I deserved it, because I'm capable. And that's how we've unfortunately been raised to believe. It's about nature versus nurture. And it really isn't about nature. It's really us and our quest to be perfect or nearly perfect that often brings us down. And I think a good leader coach can truly change that narrative. You can help your women leaders, enable them, help them believe in their capabilities, help them believe that they have it in them to forge ahead, to go further. And that's why this chapter truly just goes deep into the confidence factor and bridging that confidence gap. And I've also talked a lot about, you know, some of the other facets of what holds us back as women leaders. I really like focusing on the confidence because there is a lot of data that says we don't even try. Yeah. We don't even try. Yeah. As women, until we have a level of confidence that on average, the same man would not require that level of confidence before they tried the same activity. You're referring to the famous uh, HP study, the Hewlett-Packard study. I think it's been a long time. I mean, it was done ages ago, but it holds true even today. They were trying to get more women into senior roles in the organization, and they'd advertised for this role. And when they dissected the data, they realized women applied for these roles only when they were 100% prepared, as in they checked every box on the role profile. But men, interestingly, even if they met 60% of the criteria, had applied for that job. And that was a window or a parable into the world of how men and women react to promotions or, you know, it's really not about capability. It's about confidence in this case. You feel you can do it. So what's the worst thing that can happen to you? You'll get rejected. But no, for a lot of women, they won't raise their hand unless they believe they're completely prepared, 100% or 99% at least. So it sounds like you are advocating that we still need the same capabilities. We still need those four cornerstones, clarity, capability, consciousness, and of course, confidence. It's true for everybody. But all I say to our 
leader coaches is for the women leaders focus really focus on the confidence factor because we we know that the research is telling us it's not our capability it's not our competence that holds us back it's often our confidence i'm always curious how people frame the distinctions between men and women and so this was very helpful my pleasure in your book you talk a little bit about the distinction between mentoring and coaching and i think this is a really important distinction can you share a little bit with our listeners about what it is and why it matters? It's a great question, Maureen. Uh, and to be completely candid with you, until I started researching for the book, I've used the term interchangeably myself. Having said that, I think mentors and coaches, they both have a very important part to play in our lives. And I encourage everybody to have both. But having said that, it's also important to know the distinction between the two. They're not the same, right? Let's simplify this a bit. Mentors is a term that we use a lot more um, frequently. We talk about somebody who's mentored us through our, our career journey. And these people are typically, they could be ex-clients, ex-bosses, they could be family friends. It evokes images of somebody who's been there and done it, is a lot more experienced, typically older. At the core of what they do is give us advice. It's prescriptive in nature, right? These are people who truly believe in us. They believe in our potential and they want to make us shine brighter. We trust them and we go and we seek their guidance, right? But the difference between the mentor and the coach is a mentor will tell you what to do. A coach will ask you. A mentor is someone who is watching perhaps your life's journey from the balcony, right? This relationship can carry on for a long, long time. As I said earlier, it could be a family friend, could be an ex-boss, could be an ex-client. They want the best for you. A coach, on the other hand, is someone who's with you on the dance floor. He or she is not watching you from the balcony. They're with you in your current ecosystem. They roll up their sleeves. They get their hands dirty. They, they work with you in the trenches. They give you real-time feedback. They don't tell you what to do. They ask you powerful questions. They help you find your own path, right? And these relationships um, could be short term. It could be as short as your current role, but they are truly part of your current work ecosystem, constantly edging you, making you a better version of yourself by asking you open-ended, powerful questions to help you become better than you are today. As an extension of that, there were times it makes sense to have an internal coach there are times it makes sense to have an external coach. And I realize in some organizations, an external coach means you've made it. You're successful and we're investing in you. Yeah. In other organizations, it means you're broken, that we had to get you a coach because you're yeah. unable to, to function without one. And so irrespective of those distinctions, when is it helpful to get an external coach? I love the question. In fact, I have, I've devoted an entire chapter to it. A lot of people would ask me questions like, you talk about leader as coach, does that mean you never need an external coach? <laughs> How are you going to make a living? So it's quite funny. I guess my take on that is, um, think about your external coach as someone who complements the job of the leader, the leader who has to coach. You wake up in the morning and you have to have your outfit completely starched and ironed. And that's what you do as a leader. You make sure that everybody's outfits around you are starched and ironed. But if there's a really stubborn wrinkle, right? Maybe that's the time when you can seek the assistance of an external coach. And when I mean by a stubborn wrinkle, I don't mean it's a behavioral challenge. I'm saying maybe there's an organizational challenge. Maybe it's the time you're going through an upheaval. You're going through an M&A. You're going through change in leadership. You're going through change in business strategy. At times like this, it's great to get the support of somebody who's unbiased, who's not part of your uh, current organization, and they can bring in some fantastic best practices and they can help be that sounding board to your colleagues, to those that work for you in your team. But at the heart of finding that balance between internal coaching and external coaching is to be very clear about why you're bringing in an external coach, the reason for bringing in the coach and when you bring in the coach, right? And not everybody down the line can have an external coach. Bring in the coach at the right juncture when there are changes in the organization. Bring in coaches when your leaders are transitioning 
to bigger, better things. Bringing the coaches to coach your coaches, right? So think about when you bring them in and be very thoughtful about the process. But do remember, as leader, as a manager, you will always have to coach. That is what you do, right? Coaching is what you always do. It's part of that job definition. It's what makes you successful. At different junctures in the life cycle of the organization, please tag team with these external coaches, but be very thoughtful about when, what, and how. I'm often called in as people are getting prepared for promotion, and it's occasionally an issue of time. The boss doesn't necessarily have time to invest in all of the things the person needs to prepare, and people are often comfortable showing their sensitivities or the areas they're just not as strong with, with someone external. Because there is a risk of letting your boss know what you're not good at. In some organizations, that's a really bad idea, depending on who the person is, that then it is held against you. Because this is also, as you said earlier, with bosses coach, this is the person who evaluates my performance. They recommend promotion And as a female, and I'm already a little sensitive about, am I good enough? My confidence is an issue. So do I want to share with my boss all of those areas where I'm I'm just a little sensitive? So it may be one more effective from a time perspective, but two more effective from a confidence. And as an external coach, I think one of the things both you and I do is we've got experience across a range of organizations. So someone who's worked in one organization most of their career may not have perspective about how they compare what was different between Medtronic and AIG and whomever else. They're different organizations and helping people calibrate seems like it's an important part of my role that to move to the next level, this is what CHROs look like across 10 different organizations. Here are the levers in your current organization, but here are the levers if you want to be best in class across your industry or across your functional area. Agree. Can't agree more. I think you articulated that beautifully. And I think that's when people like Ruchira and Maureen come in and that's where we add the most value really. Where else do you add great value? Because I'm imagining hiring you as a coach personally would be really helpful. And this isn't the sales pitch. This is just talking about you specifically and also about where a coach, because the other one for me is working with senior executives who, again, may not have someone in the organization who is equipped to coach them. Yeah, The CEO may be external facing fairly often. Yeah, Again, you may not want to expose your deficiencies to the board. Well, they do say, and I think uh, it rings true, it is very lonely at the top. And uh, while we talk about the leader as a coach, some of the most lonely executives are those that run regions or countries because they get very little feedback, very minuscule feedback from um, their bosses. I've had very candid discussions. It's in the book as well. This gentleman who runs the investment bank, he was very candid with me and he said, you know, when I'm at this level of seniority, the assumption is I know everything there is to know which is not true because the learning never ceases, right? You have to grow at every level. And when you do meet your manager, your boss, who's a global lead in his case, they talk about work pressures. They talk about people. They talk about the business. They talk about pivoting the strategy. They very rarely talk about matters that concern him. At times like this, I truly think a coach is a fantastic addition, an external coach in this case, because it's a pyramid, right? And as you climb this traditional corporate ladder, the feedback loop gets smaller and narrower and narrower. So that's one place where we add value. The second is for a lot of us who've had fairly eclectic corporate careers, I think we're in a better position to assimilate and understand the trials and tribulations of a leader, right? Because we've been there and we've done that. So we're in a much better position to appreciate what they're going through. And as you said earlier, we were able to sort of bring in some some learnings from different industries and also ideas and suggestions of how other leaders have done it right. We don't often tell them, but we sometimes we nudge them in that direction. One of the things that I do is I also get my coaches at some point to meet each other. They just do peer-to-peer coaching if they'd like to. And I found that to be very valuable. Not everybody's open to it, but when they are, it's something I'm very happy to do so that they can get to know each other better. 
So I think in a variety of ways, there is a case for having external coaches. And I said earlier, you have to be very thoughtful about when you bring them in. They add a huge value, but they come in for short bursts of times, right? They come in, they help you solve for something, but you, the leader, for you, it's a continuum. That's what you do every single day. And you take people along in the journey, you enable them, you empower them, and you elevate them to be better than they are. We've talked a lot about what we do as coaches. Now let's shift into the chair that the coachee's sitting in. I'm coming in to get coaching, and I want to make sure that this is an exceptional experience because I'm investing time and money to be in this relationship. How do I make sure I'm a good coachee so that I get the best results? Uh, excellent question. And I think there are two parts to it. First, how do you select the right coach for yourself? I've often thought about this because organizations, I almost feel that sometimes the coachee doesn't have a choice in the matter, which is all wrong. Because to me, this relationship, the bedrock, the reservoir has to be about trust. And you can't trust somebody unless you respect them and unless you like them. So I often tell organizations when it's a corporate mandate, let the coachee, as you described, spend some time with this proposed coach and decide for himself or herself if there's chemistry. That's the first rule of uh, starting this relationship on the right foot, right? You both have to respect each other. You both have to like each other. And from there, you go forward. So first things first, chemistry. The second is be clear about your coaching outcomes, right? If you're reluctant or you feel that you know it all, getting coached is going to be hard work for you. Coaching is also about, as you said right at the start, it's about not learning, it's about unlearning your ways of working, your fixed beliefs and your old ideas. That's what coaching is all about, right? It's about taking you out of your comfort zone and making you do things that you didn't think you were capable of. So it's also about your mindset and you have to spend that time. You have to pause and reflect and ask yourself, am I ready to change? Because coaching is not all warm and fuzzy and encouraging and loving. It also is about tough love. When you take on the mandate or the mantle to make somebody better than they are, and when you want them to shine brighter, you often give them feedback. You often hold up a mirror to them. And sometimes you don't like what you see in the mirror. You have to be prepared for it. Every coach has a different style. Some are more nurturing. Some are more straightforward. But at the heart of all of that, their only objective is to make the coachee become better than they are today. Right? So you have to be cognizant of that reality. And the third thing is you have to leave your ego at the door, which is closely linked to the other point. As a coachee, if you truly want to make this relationship succeed, do three things. One, check out your coach. Be happy. If there's chemistry, if you trust the person, if you like the person, go for it. Two, approach this relationship with an open mind. Reflect, pause, ask yourself if you're ready. If you're ready to get coached, which means unlearning, which means facing some home truths and sometimes doing things that you're uncomfortable with. And yes, you have to leave your ego at the door. That's what you can do to make this relationship more successful. Thank you. I think that's really helpful. The other one for me is doing the practices between sessions. So I think of so many of us, myself included, I'm running from meeting to meeting. And there are days I don't build time in my schedule to slow down and prep for the next meeting. It's just literally zoom, 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 bathroom, maybe get a cup of coffee back on the next zoom. And we as leaders need to build in that reflection time, which I realize is way easier said than done with crazy schedules. And that's how we make the changes. So back to if I'm doing this to be better, I'm working with a chief revenue officer now and, and he gives me assignments. And usually it's the night before that I'm doing the assignment. Sometimes I'd like to just skip the meetings, not because he's not great, but because it's hard. I have to do stuff that I'm not good at. When I'm busy, I just don't want to. So I'm wondering for some of our listeners, it's really hard work to be different and better, even if it's rewarding. It's not just showing up to a conversation with my coach. It's then thinking and shifting either my behavior or all the way fundamentally to my meaning making. How did I see that thing? You asked me a brilliant question and that gets me to see something differently. And then that's the golden thread that unravels the whole darn thing. And then I'm 
stuck thinking about like, oh, I do that wrong and I do that wrong or suboptimally. And how do I then put myself back together in a way that is more effective? So how do you support a client who's just unraveled themselves because of your brilliant question? It's not as simple as that. I think it's a very layered answer. But I think at the core of this is helping them appreciate that the results of their coaching will not be visible tomorrow or the day after or in the next week. It's to have this firm belief that it's this incremental effort that will get them towards their destination. They will never know the exact moment where they've morphed into being a better leader or even a brilliant leader. It just happens. It happens, but you have to keep at it, right? You have to keep doing the right things every day. It's like when you get onto this weight loss journey or you have to be consistent and that's the key to doing it. And one day it will just happen. But the belief and the self-confidence that you have it in you to become better than you are today, to become more capable, to become more self-aware or conscious, as I call it, and clearly have the clarity to go on and do bigger, better things. I think that's the key. And in many ways, I think we, the coaches, we have a big responsibility to constantly encourage, to constantly tell them that, that they're on the right track and they have to keep doing what they're doing every single day in their own little ways to get to that destination where the ultimate aim is really to shine even brighter and soar even higher as a leader. So I want to end on that note because that is the goal. That's all of our goal to help our clients and ourselves to shine brighter and it is a daily practice. And as I'm going through it right now with our team, it shows up in my dreams. It shows up everywhere. I wake up having these not very peaceful dreams because I've unraveled something. So I appreciate the reassurance that over time, I'm Humpty Dumpty and I get to get put back together again in a way that you don't see all the glue and seams, but that I'll actually yeah. be better. So- Ruchiwa, where would people learn more about you? I realize your book is likely for sale through all the standard distribution channels, but tell our listeners a little bit more. It's available on Amazon. I have a website, chirachaudhry.com, that they can visit. The book links are there, but there's also a bunch of articles and tools that they can explore to know more about my own thinking and my philosophy. I also teach this class, Leader as Coach, at several business schools. So a lot of the literature is there as well. And yes, I'm available on social media. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm everywhere. So please feel free to stay in touch with me, write to me, and I'm happy to answer any queries that you may have. Beautiful. So would you spell your name so that when they go to yourname.com, they can find you? It's R-U-C-H-I-R-A, Ruchira Chowdhury, C-H-A-U-D-H-A-R-Y. RuchiraChowdhury.com. If you write Ruchira and Google me, I promise you, you'll get many hits. Okay. <laughs> thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you very much. And I want to thank W. Bex for being our sponsor for this show. And to our listeners, I know that you are busy and your contributions so matter in the world right now. Thank you for taking your precious time to engage with both of us. And please come back, listen, like, and share our podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. It was a real privilege and a pleasure. <laughs>